Jackie, hi. How are you doing? I'm really well. How are you? Yeah, very good. And and great to see you because it's been um, a few years probably since we saw... I think the last time I saw you was in Glasgow. Oh, goodness. Was that for the PPA, the, the physio conference? Yeah. Were you yeah, there? Yeah. I think yes, I was there. I was there. <laughs> um, uh, it was quite cold and rainy in January. Maybe not, not maybe a couple of years ago. Yeah. 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 So that would have been the last time. And then and then before that, I think, was probably the... Th- Do you go to the thing in Reading? I seem to remember seeing you in Reading. Yeah, the yeah. Um, emotions, what was it called? Something, pain, philosophy yeah. and that kind of thing. Yeah, with, uh, with Mick and uh, Tim and it's lots there. of other people. In, in yeah, and, then, and before that... I think I saw you. Did you go to the thing in Nottingham? There was a thing in Nottingham. Yes. Um, yes. And, and then, it, and then it probably tracks back to to where we very first met, and that was, of course, doing the the Pain Masters together at Kings. That's right. And I'm not sure of the year, but you think we finished in 2006? I think that's what my CV says. Yes. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, okay, well, look, we, we haven't spoken properly for a while then. So let, maybe let's start with what, what are you up to at the moment? Oh, what am I up to? So professionally, uh, quite, quite a busy day. So today I've just come off the British Pain Society annual scientific meeting. So just presenting there and looking at assessment. So that was today's actual what I was doing. But more broadly... I am working as a physiotherapist at UCLH in London. Um, I work for an inpatient complex pain team. So I've been doing that, I think, since 2016. I did that full time as the main physio on the team until I started my PhD, which is what I'm also up to. Um, I started that in 2018. Um, and so now I do my PhD part-time and I'm clinical one day a week, um, supporting inpatients with complex pain conditions. Um, but during the pandemic, like most people, um, I'm doing very little of that. And that's my counterpart who's there full-time. He's yeah. doing a lot of the inpatient work and I do a lot more, um, probably just research, carrying on with my research and thinking a little bit more deeply about pain yeah yeah wow okay so so busy busy times um tell, tell me about the your your clinical work and, and what, what does that look like at the moment yes yeah, so it's quite an interesting um project so it started off i think before i was recruited to the post um there was some work done by my predecessors so um suzanne why don't I remember? So I didn't work with Suzanne, but I know she was the person who did the pre-work. the pre work. Yeah. And so they, they kind of noticed that there was a lot of inpatients of people in hospital who were really struggling with pain and not in the sense of acute post-operative pain, but, you know, struggling with having chronic or persistent pain and then other things like a broken hip or, you know, a, a sickle cell crisis or whatever and so what they did was a pilot so Suzanne and Natasha Curran who's 
currently our she's the medical she's a pain doctor yeah set this up and a psychologist um Anna Mandeville they set up a little pilot and the three of them used to go around the hospital and offer what's typically your typical pain management approach as it's known in outpatients and they collected some outcome data and they found that it was extremely beneficial for the teams um, in the hospital as well as the patients and they not sure the ins and outs of it but they somehow convinced the trust to run something called a pain raid and what that is is they got all almost all the admin stuff so your HR finance teams the board to go out into the hospitals and do a survey um, so that it was them collecting the data and they just asked all current inpatients about their pain yeah and the, the what came out of that was quite a high proportion of people in hospital were struggling with pain that wasn't well managed um, and I think they used more acute kind of pain terms but it was kind of seen to be a problem and so lots of wrangling and stuff with data but that was so that when I got recruited it was a pilot and our our role was to just try it out and see if it worked in more detail so it was a full team yeah. so I've worked with pain consultant pain nurses um, psychologists we had full admin support which is I know a rarity yeah. um, myself and yeah so we we started off with some of the more complex legacy patients I suppose who as a physio quite quite quite, quite challenging for me because it wasn't it wasn't the standard outpatient kind of caseload I was used to. Yeah. Um, and it was right across all the hospitals. So we got to see a you know, huge variety of people, collected lots of data, really thinking about the intervention and defining it, describing it, um, sharing some of that work at various conferences, etc. cetera. Um, so, so yeah, so that's kind of now an established substantive service. It's been funded fully. And yeah. it's part of what is offered um, as part of the pain service at, at the hospital. Wow. I mean, that, that's quite a project. So interesting that you found or it was found that. Can I call it chronic pain? You can, because that's what I call it. Okay. Okay. So yeah. I, I mean, obviously some people like it to be persistent or ongoing or whatever, but, but we'll stick with chronic um so it was found that the chronic pain existed in a in a large number of people who were in hospital for other reasons yeah absolutely and and as a consequence the priority were the other reasons and their their chronic pain which could well have been influential or part of that scenario wasn't being addressed and this team was set up to address that with the people doing dealing with the other matters yeah that's right so what 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 was happening was, um, as you know, sometimes people with chronic pain can be can be perceived as quite challenging um, and they cause a lot of distress when I suppose the hospital designed to deal with really concrete pathological issues. And so when when the clinicians were faced with somebody where the two things didn't match up, so they'd go, well, we fixed your problem we fixed your Crohn's disease, there's no evidence of inflammation, why are you still in pain? And I think there was a lot of that language around, 
um, you know, drug seeking or, or malice or, you know, some kind of ulterior motive. So I think all this distress from the clinical teams was manifesting in more calls to the acute pain team. Yeah. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with acute pain teams. They're, they're more about post-operative pain and they, they offer, you know, medications or, you know, mostly opioids in the form of patient-controlled analgesia. And they were going, well, we've, we can't keep increasing the dose. Yeah, yeah. Like their pain doesn't seem to be getting any better. So I think it was that sense of there's a lot of distress around a small number of patients. And then when we were speaking to the patients, they were equally as distressed yeah. because they were not being believed and, um, you know, that their admissions were quite traumatic. Um, and it was across the board. So your question around um, the reasons for being in hospital. So it was a mixed bag. So it might be that they had a clinical condition that they had been admitted for into that team. But there's a team um, at the hospital where I work that's called the clinical pharmacology team. And they seem to take on all the, I suppose, so-called medically unexplored or medically unexplained people. And a lot of patients we saw were, seemed to be grouped under that, i.e. Yeah. we're gonna try and investigate everything. Um, so sometimes the admission was for pain yeah. for um, other symptoms that are commonly associated with pain or, you know, extreme fatigue, um, motor issues, bladder, bowel, headaches, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, wow. Gosh, I mean, that, that seems like an enormous remit. Oh, it's huge, yes. <laughs> yeah. um, and and how, how is your team coping with that, that demand? So it's a really interesting um, observation. So over time, when we first started, there was a really high demand for the service. So we were across the board. So we were at the dental hospital one day and then we were at the neurological hospital the next day and we were kind of rushed off our feet. Um, and I think that was for quite a small group of patients who were having repeated admissions they, yeah. they were always in the hospitals. They had the big sets of notes. Mm -hmm. You know, everyone kind of knew them and they had reputations. So we, we spent quite a lot of time with a, a small group of people, about 20 or 30. Um, and, and at that point, we almost capped the, the input and said, we're going to focus on just a small number, proof of concept. Yeah. We test this out because... We know it kind of should work, but we don't really have a, a way of, of demonstrating that absolutely this is helpful across the board. Yeah. Um, yes, so, so that was the initial case. As it is now, the demand is high, it remains high, but a huge part of what we do is focused on clinician or practice education. So part of the remit was very much is, you know, do one, teach one, if we spend a lot of time on the wards, just getting the staff to understand that we talk about pain a little bit differently, yeah. doing consultations alongside our colleagues and, and just kind of intervening and advocating, you know, at the moment of distress when everything was kicking off, we might suggest a slightly different approach in terms of how we communicate or, or, or cope with chronic pain. But on the whole, I don't think 
what we're doing is very different from any kind of clinical skills that you'd use in a more formal outpatient setting. Yeah. They're the same skills, it's just more targeted, I think, across a, a bigger team. So the education part of things was, you know, was a big part of it so that hopefully over time, the whole organization was thinking about pain a little bit differently. Yeah. And as far as I know, in terms of the data that was collected, that seems to be the case. Um, but it's still a hospital and the focus is still on, you know, the medical, the medicine, the fixing and the getting out. You don't yeah. want to stay in hospital for yeah. very long. Yeah. How, how were those, I'll call them modern pain messages, how, how were they received? Do, do you know, I think it's the same kind of principle because, so let's take it um, in two parts. So the people who have long-term conditions, they take that message almost immediately because they almost seem to have the lived experience to know that this existing thing is not that helpful. It's like I've been coming to hospital for 10 years. I don't like them. <laughs> this is a little bit nicer. Yeah. Um, I'm probably, we're probably more measured in how we talk about, I suppose, contemporary pain ideas. Um, we don't necessarily do pain education. Yeah. It's more a matter of um, just person-centered, deep listening, yeah. um, you know, around curtains and really it's that conception for, for the patients. So if they, if the only conception that they have is um, if I use a gastro, example because that's what I'm most familiar with is they say when I eat I have terrible abdominal pain yeah and they have that kind of linking between what they've been told and their condition and how it's been treated so what what it might do is we might offer a slightly different conception where we might fo focus in on the gaps and say so are there instances when when you eat and that doesn't cause you lots of pain or or maybe it's just happened immediately, you started eating. And what might explain that? Because the, the current model of general digestion doesn't work mm. because the argument would be, well, you've not finished chewing and you've not swallowed and it's not hit your gastric juices. There's just not enough time for all of that to have happened. Yeah, yeah. And I think the alternative story they have or they're being told is you're a little bit loco you know, because if that doesn't make sense to their medical teams or their nursing teams, they do get seen as a little bit cray cray or, you know, yeah. not, not quite right. Whereas yeah. what we're then saying is we're, we're using the same story that we're not negating that they have a, a clinical condition. What we're saying is over time, our bodies, our, as human beings, we learn or our brains learn to do, you know, to notice things a bit sooner the triggers might change over time so something about operant conditioning you know if, if every time you've eaten in the past or something negative has happened that's caused your pain perhaps that's something we can explore and and so the explanations are, are co-constructed very much yeah. they are they're co-constructed with the medical teams with the patients their carers and so we do come up with quite varied explanations of what could potentially be working here. I suppose the right language is formulations because we, 
yeah. we work very much um very closely with our psychologists yeah to yeah. to just bring a slightly different perspective um so for some people but i think it's that individualistic thing so for some people they want the detail yeah. So if I explain something, they go, hang on a minute, I've got some education in that area. Could you tell me more? Mm-hmm. Um, and and the, the setting, it is on a hospital ward, which is usually quite busy yeah. and noisy. Yeah. So we might try and walk somewhere else and do a lot of walking and talking and staring out of windows, um, contextual kind of explanations. Um, and then signposting to what is already very good literature and kind of resources out there. So we might select with with each other and say, these are a few things around what we've talked about. Yeah. Is that yeah. something you found helpful? And then use that as an anchor to come back to each time and slowly develop what what is essentially quite a brief intervention. It's, it's intense because mm. when we're there, we, we might spend hours rather than minutes with a person and their, their families. And then obviously they, got, they have to leave the hospital. Yeah. Um, and then we would then do some outreach work and we can do home visits. We can go work with local GPs or ambulance services in before times, before COVID times. Yeah. It's a bit different yeah. now. Wow, I mean that that's a that's a fantastic remit and and the extension of where you can take it and the it sounds like you've got this what I would say necessary um, freedom to be creative to kind of bring things together in that very person centered way. So as you said, you know, involve the the different explanations and and people. So you're not saying that's wrong, that's right, and and then getting them to sort of self-reflect so that they can notice their own experiences and kind of come up with it themselves. Is, is, that, is that about right? Yeah, yeah, very much so, because I think there is the risk that if we go in with what is still quite a, a new model in terms of, if I think about pain neuroscience type explanations, you know, the data we have don't really come from the type the populations that I'm seeing. So I think I would it would be quite remiss to go, absolutely, this is absolutely what's happening for you. So we spend, so with the, the gastro, luckily I think with gastroenterology, they've also, as a, a speciality, they've gone through that almost separately. They've gone through a reckoning and gone, there's so many patients we see that don't fit within a biomedical model. Yeah. And there's so many of them that they can't all just be collectively in on a conspiracy theory. <laughs> and they've kind of done so much work from basic science, you know, they've looked at, you know, cells, they've looked at swallowing and special tests that I should know about, but I can never quite say. And so they can almost say to, to more certainty than you would say with back pain. They yeah. can say, I can see your entire alimentary tract. I've done an endoscopy. I've done this and I'm showing you the pictures. It's all, it's wonderful. Mm. So, and they've actually got, there's a bit of lay literature focused on the gut at the moment without being quite popular. Um, people are doing all sorts around the microbiome and, you know, brain health and body health. So I think 
working with that group, it's it's actually a little bit easier than working with musculoskeletal colleagues because yeah. they're okay with those explanations. They're going, yeah, totally, that makes sense. I understand. Yeah. It's yeah. maybe the richness of the feed or or maybe the context, something as bad has happened in their life. Yeah. So they they seem to be okay to come alongside with 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 slightly more different interpretations that are not just pathoanatomical. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's just been a, a really nice thing to, to observe. And we're trying to do some basic data collection to better understand um, the, the, the different approaches as they were, because yeah. the psychologists are also doing, um, you know, not experimental, that's not the right word, they're, they're testing out known theories in a slightly different patient group in a slightly different setting yeah yeah so if if i was to be be watching you in action what what would i see you doing you know that's such a good question so about two years ago as part of the evaluation they asked me you know you're what kind of physio are you you don't make sense to be honest I don't know so I did a piece of work that I just looked at um the job description I looked a bit of the data and and came up with with a little bit of a an outline of the kind of work that that I do in clinic not in clinic in in my clinical world and the best example I think is somewhere like in A&E so in a accident and emergency is because I'm a physio people seem to have more trust in if I say that your leg's not that broken (laughs) they might be more likely to listen to me so I think they send me in as a bit of a Trojan horse because there's lots of physiotherapists colleagues up down in A&E doing acute therapy work Um, so if you saw me down there I might be called in say with someone with a, a flare-up or at the time it might not be called a flare-up but they've, they've come in with severe pain they've been triaged they've been tested and there really isn't anything that the emergency team can do yeah. and there's no route for referral so they're like I don't know where to send you so I might go down either on my own or usually with with colleagues but some Quite often the nurse is probably the, the symbiotic relationship there is we go down together. Um, the nurse goes and does the, the deep finding out of what's actually going on in the clinical story, that what are they saying about the patient? And again, it's, it's an assessment. So we have a conversation, usually quite lengthy with the patient about what's going on for them, what's brought them in today, um, what are they concerned about? What were they hoping for by coming in? Um, so, you know, hopes, expectations, and really not thinking about beliefs probably till quite far on into our interaction when it feels like we've got a bit of a therapeutic alliance. It's a bit safe. You've got the, you've set up some some trust you know boundaries you've checked in some of the loose ends so it might be that they might say I had a scan and they've told me everything's fine and they've just left me here mm-hmm. and it might be that I might offer to have a look at the scan with them 
if that would be helpful and then take them through that with the with the alternative you know filling in the blanks usually it's the they said this but but they've not filled in the big yawning gap as to why I am this way so we do that um I suppose I should say it is considered an advanced practice role so um we work even though we're in an, an MDT we um I've got training and prescribing and all your 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 traditional advanced practice I think the biggest thing for me is this you know that those communication skills without without drumming it down to such a narrow little thing it's it's spending a lot of time managing distress and and then so what else might you see you might also then see me if it's important to that person they might say would you mind having a look and I say absolutely what what would be helpful about that um I don't think it would look like any kind of typical examination I'm not looking for a specific ailment unless if there's something in their story that something concerns me but you know they've usually been seen by about six different clinical people at this point Um, so it might be we focus on what are you noticing you know sensations what's that linking to distress and and maybe doing some in the moment work to really do I suppose depends on your language it's either a a behavioral experiment or it's just a, a a moment where we might do a a body scan or or something to manage the distress at the time yeah. um, and then following from that usually from the interaction i'm not sure what the active ingredient is we then come up with a plan together and say that this is what's available and say for if they say for example i want an operation and that's not on the tables for them. It might be that spend a bit of time talking about that. If they say it's about medication, more often than not, they'll say it's not working for me and it's making me feel groggy or blah, blah, blah. So we might discuss deprescribing and then very much safety netting in the full sense of something's brought them in, they're really distressed right now them going home calmer doesn't mean they're not just going to come back in about three hours time so we we spend a lot of time then with the other teams in the in A&E for example the acute therapy team who work on discharge planning social workers um the occupational therapists and really think broadly about what's been usually it uncovers that there's something going on socially that has contributed to them coming in and when we look at safety netting that so if it's about homeless health it might be that you link in with a homeless health team if it's more a musculoskeletal thing that's just been missed we might you know link them back into the system um if it's definitely this is a persistent pain chronic pain clarified and and they're okay with that we might then refer them to the outpatient service but given some of the weights for, for, for getting into that service, we might then say, why don't we book you in um, for an appointment, say on Wednesday, come to this place. A whole bunch of us will be there. We'll have another chat and then we'll see. So that's, that's what you might see. Just change the condition. Yeah. But in general, it looks a bit like that. And the conversations might shift 
Um, if I'm with a medical colleague, they might focus more on, you know, what other interventions might be possible or not possible. Um, conversations around medication that aren't that aren't covered by your guidelines or your your papers. They tend to be a little bit more nuanced. Yeah, yeah. So communication really is at the heart of that. Yeah, absolutely. Is I think if I think of a lot of the distress you're faced with when you first go see someone who's suffering, it, it, it can feel quite overwhelming and you want to almost back away and go, ah, this is, this is, this is a lot. So I think something about that, um, you know, empathy and just thinking about, gosh, how, how, how much must they be struggling that yeah. this is what's coming out right now. And, 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 and yeah using all the skills over the years um I don't think I've done I've done training and motivational interviewing which is very helpful but absolutely not in the form that it was described as a as a nice brief intervention that usually goes quite in a lovely sequence so it might be part of what we do yeah um, but there's no one model yeah absolutely no one model I quite like um Matt I'm going to get her name wrong, <laughs> Mishyak, um, physiotherapist in Canada that does has done a really lovely model of the therapeutic alliance um, in the form of a square and how you've got to kind of shore up the boxes in order to get that communication right. And, and yeah, it doesn't always go right. Yeah. Frequently goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but but having that sort of idea in your in your thinking or coming through that lens, you find helpful in establishing the things that you need to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you always hold that. Um, so another kind of bit of work I did as uh, I think last year, a couple of years ago, I went along to the training. Um, I can't for the life of me name it now, but with John Lorner, Dr. John Lorner, and it's oh, the narrative, narrative-based stuff, isn't it? That, that's right. And I think it was what what was really helpful for me about that course or that um, interaction was being able to hold the two things. So he talks about the narrative and the normative, because obviously, as a as a, a physio in a hospital, there's obviously expectations that you've got to make sure nothing serious is going on here that you know you're, you're covering all your bases but at the same time you want that space to listen to someone's story and the narrative and and I think there was always this big tension because sometimes you're like oh I just need a reflex hammer to, to just <laughs> check things and scan everything and just you know luckily because it's a little bit more of a sheltered environment our patients more than more than likely will have had that because yeah. somebody else somewhere two days before got really anxious about it and ordered a full body MRI with contrast and everything. So usually you're dealing with, okay, we have a lot of information now, but then the narrative is missing. And so I think a lot of the work is around holding those two perspectives and at the same time constructing and co-constructing a narrative because I think a lot of the, the the ideas about pain that we hold as a society are very different from how I say you and I practice. Mm. You know, we're thinking about all these other models of pain, but broadly, most people think I've got pain. 
something's terrible here you've not found it yet yeah so i must keep looking yeah 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 it's i mean pain is is a most challenging field to to work in I'm not, i mean there are of course there are there are others um and i always feel that it it takes you know great courage um and wisdom to sit with someone who's in pain um who well ultimately suffering they could be suffering for all sorts of reasons um and some of those those communication techniques you mentioned particularly things like mi um you know are not only about that person they're about both of you and and you know sustained career in therapy you know it, it takes a lot of pressure off being able to you know use that that approach that way of that way of being but nonetheless i'm, I'm just curious about how how you look after yourself in the light of, of all of that, the fact that you do face these difficult situations um, and you're a human being, who, who cares? How, how do you look after yourself? I think, I think part of this, part of it is maybe as a person, I'm drawn to this kind of work, maybe because I'm slightly suited to, to conversations and I like chatting um, <laughs> on the whole. Um, but I think as well that there's, there's the, the kind of package of care. It's not, it's not self-care as in the modern representation of self-care. I don't send candles and just zen myself out. But I think there is something to be said for um, because I encounter so many people who, who are struggling to move and to be in the world and they want to do that. I think it's made me more aware of my own abilities um, and, and thinking about um, th that it's not just looking at people with disabilities. I, I, I separate myself as acknowledging that I have abilities. And so I, I probably notice them more. I, I'm more active now than, than I've ever been before. Um, not in a exercise kind of way I do do exercise but you know being in nature walking about um just taking care of myself and just thinking oh my goodness I've been sitting down for a little bit longer my brain's getting a little bit overcome spending a bit more time so part of our training um in the department focuses on different approaches so done eight week kind of repeat courses on mindfulness so you know an mbsr course so your mindfulness-based stress reduction yeah so i think maybe that something about awareness spending a lot of time being aware when things are are going wrong um and then more practically the team we we ha all have psychology supervision as standard so really as a way of making sense of what's happening with our patients but also as a way to make sure we're taking care of ourselves as well as very regular supervision with my own peers yeah. um, that's built into the model of how we work um, and space to be creative I think like you mentioned before it's it's an unusual kind of job that we do mm. so we do have it um, protected time to, to, to do thinking yeah. and to do debriefing um, and taking advantage of things like grand rounds in the hospital um, and um, shorts rounds where you talk about events where things have gone wrong. And I think for me as a, as a physio, 
I don't think I've ever had that space. I think it's always been when something goes wrong, you always hear about it later or you get a solicitor's letter yeah. and it's all a bit who did what wrong. Whereas um, in the hospital, they have these meetings after something goes wrong and it's all very much about accountability and, but also about, it's okay, let's just talk about it. That yeah. learning and, and forward thinking. Um, and I think as well, um, the, the awareness that, in fact, let me, let me rephrase it. So we've had about th three or four people doing this role in rotations or, or different guises. And um, so we have worked together and produced a narrative account of the kind of work that we do. And yeah. what seems to happen is there's a bit of a split. Um, in general, people who find there's a lot of chaos, and chaos and uncertainty. And so people who see chaos more as uncertainty are more able to kind of you know roll with the punches go with the flow yeah try a bit of this try a bit of that and and they seem to have less it's not as distressing for them yeah um, on the other hand you then have people who might perceive that uncertainty is quite chaotic um and the complexity is as as complication and 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 then try and um apply order to it so yeah. they might then say right what we might need here is nice boxes to put people in um, and what they found is that doesn't seem to work in a in an inpatient hospital environment or with people who are are either by their bedside or they're not and you have to go find them and there's no equipment there's no gym so you've got to like go off into the middle of the street and go on an sh impromptu shopping trip so I think even though that seems quite you know dichotomous it's if you're having a day where you're feeling, oh my goodness, everything's feeling a bit chaotic and yeah. you see, you, you kind of notice yourself being drawn towards, you're trying to put things into boxes. It's just an awareness for us, I think, that you're doing that box thing. That suggests that you might need a bit of a pause. You might need to step aside and draw on your colleagues a little bit more. Um, and we And then just really understanding that it's a team approach because yeah. I think no one individual can 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 hold a lot of that kind of there's so many balls in the air that it's about okay the team approach fully including the primary care team they're, they're kind of essential to the work we do is you know talking to the people who see them on a weekly basis and say what's going on there and, and what can we do to support that yeah yeah that's that's really interesting and and you know, going back to things you were saying before about how how it's set up for you to have that support, the the supervision um, that that seems quite rare. I mean, I've not really heard because I know in, in psychology and counselling and such like it's it's what they do in physiotherapy, nursing. You know, if you're lucky, you've got a, a good mentor um, who who takes you under their wing or you seek a mentor and, and work with them. Um, but it's kind of luck of the draw, but you, but you have that as part of the deal. Yeah, and, and I was trying to think about this as to why that's the case. So I think I've been very lucky and I acknowledge that is even in my career as a physio, at, at least at the point I started doing pain, I've always had um, colleagues or 
who have provided me that kind of um, psych, you know, psychology support or supervision or something quite structured that requires me to turn up and, and do some deep thinking and learning about what it is I'm doing and, um, and undoing some of the time. So I've had that across my pain career. Um, and when I started in this role, I think there was that scope. It could have been anything because the space, it was open in terms of what it could be. And I think I insisted even more so because I was seeing conditions I'd never heard of before. Mm. Um, a tertiary hospital, you know, there was that sense of, oh, I can't possibly go see that patient until I've read everything up on this rare mutation genetic thing that I've never heard of until you then spend supervision this time maybe with your medic colleagues who go oh no no one knows that that except professor so and so she's done all the research on it so it almost allows you to by seeing other people acknowledge vulnerability and I think it just allows me to yeah to go I yeah I I can't know anything I don't know anything and I need that checking in with people and also just leadership I think we've we've got some phenomenal leadership in the in the team and in the service in in developing it as well as in sustaining it Um, and yeah super super grateful that we've got that space because I'm not sure I could do the work if it was a typical you know one after the other patient with no breaks I think the the risk of burnout is is real yeah, I yeah I, I I I can't see how it would work without the kind of philosophy that you've described there, um, because it it needs that and you need that that space and also it sounds like you can be you can be authentic you can be yourself you can be vulnerable you you can make mistakes with a view to learn and and that's all part of it part of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that's, you know, I've spoken to a number of people, but I, you know, I don't know every department across the country, of course, but, but it feels rare. It feels like this is something really quite unique. Yeah, and I think so. We did some, did some literature searching and I know there's a team in Toronto that has a translational pain service. And that means they focus on the uh, post-operative kind of cases to try and uh, manage opioids because that's that's their particular set of, of problems yeah. um, and I've spoken at, at a number of events where people there's an appetite I think there's an appetite to, to provide the service um, across the board but I think what I try and convey when I speak is it's really about the culture because if somebody says you must see this number of patients every day and da 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 I think the benefits wouldn't be realized because we might spend an, an extraordinary amount of time with with one person if that's what what is needed yeah, um, yeah. and the, the benefits aren't realized for that individual right then it might be throughout the system mm-hmm. and we'll never know about it but but I think because the because we're in a position, a privileged position to do the work. I think there's also that um, responsibility to share how it's been done, um, which, which is really hard to pinpoint. 
yeah. is how it's been done. What is it that you do? What is sustaining that work? And you know, can it be can it be done elsewhere? And the hope is that that we can mimic this elsewhere. But that's I think there's one of the parts of the project was um, Luke Mordecai, who is an anaesthetist. Um, did his MD work looking at evaluating our service. So because of that, we've got actually got some really strong metrics to support what it is that we do, not, not necessarily on a case-by-case -case basis, but across the, the whole system. Yeah. Uh, again, that's very circumstantial to have a whole entire person whose job it is, is to evaluate the whole service. But it can be done. Yeah. yeah, and we know that that model of of being less siloed in our work is is more desirable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it strikes me that this this kind of work will will not only appeal to to certain folk, um, but but absolutely requires certain folk to to do it. This this won't be for everyone, and. Um, uh, and I, th I don't think there's many people that, that could do this, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, I think it's a particular skill set and a particular drive. Um, so to replicate that, there's, there's challenges there, aren't there? Because, you know, there, there you are and there's only one of you and, and so on and so forth. Um, that, that I would see as a challenge. What, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, we've had the opportunity to test it out because, um, so Terry Smith, who currently is in the role, um, that was, you know, because of me stepping out to do my PhD work, you know, that was about then me thinking, how do I support someone else doing stuff that I don't know what it was we were doing, we just, you know, recruit someone, let them do it. Um, but what, what we started to think about is perhaps you know, if you think about your typical inpatient, outpatient physio split, or, or same with psychologists, they're either inpatient work or outpatient, is, is perhaps if we can get this kind of enthusiasm for pain with our inpatient colleagues, a lot of them will probably have the skill sets to, to step into a role like this, maybe a little bit more so than, than more people um, conditioned into outpatient work. Yeah. because of that being able to deal with a lack of structure and the complexity but it's been it's 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 hard because typically the education stuff around pain and the interest doesn't necessarily always land in more of your inpatient spaces mm -hmm. we're hoping to change that um but yeah watch this space <laughs> might have to well. Yeah, well, I will with, with massive interest. And um, I, I think it's fantastic. And it's it's sort of, you know, I often when I'm doing these podcasts, I'm thinking, well, is this going to be useful for, for student physios? And, and this undoubtedly will. And, and I would hope that it would fire up some some interest. Um, and, and, you know, when I've gone and spoken to student groups um, about things, I have found that there's been a massive interest in pain which is really encouraging, really encouraging, because, you know, as we know, the, the pain education is, is minimal across all healthcare, not just physio. Um, so, you know, that, that's an issue. So there, there is a thirst. So, well, hopefully students will listen to this and we'll certainly pump it in their direction um, 
for them to to explore. Um, we'll we'll um, I'll ask you for links and things towards the end, but um, yeah, yeah. but so yeah, that kind of moves us on to your your PhD then, which is sounds like that's most of your week. Oh yes, my whole week, my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, yeah, I think it was just again, it's a natural progression. Um, unlike I think, like most people, I did some research basic research um, for my BSE and then as part of the master's project you kind of delve a little bit more into research methods and then I had a personal interest in kind of more social determinants of health so I did some further master's work on global health and really trying to think about different ways of looking at problems particularly pain um, and then from that point I think that's when I met my supervisors who supervised me through a master's project um, and they must have just heard me bang on and on and on about pain and things like that. Um, so they, they supported me in kind of building that idea and developing it. Um, and so what I'm currently doing is no surprise. I'm, I'm really interested in this concept of self-management of chronic pain because that's all we talk about. So for me, in my clinical work, I'm, when you know if we're having a multidisciplinary team meeting somebody will pipe up and say this patient would benefit from self-management or I think this is more self-management angle and I think after a certain point I went what are we talking about like what is it and and so that's that's kind of what I wrote my proposal around and trying to really understand self-management of chronic pain from a number of different perspectives um, and using qualitative work. So um, very, very different from where I started from. Mm. I am really thinking quite deeply from a sociological lens and a bit of philosophy, um, but you know, not, not too deeply philosophical, but really aware of some of my choices in, in how I look at, at this topic. And so currently have my preliminary findings, um, starting to write up. Um, but yeah, so that, that's the PhD, which is most of my, my time. But I think for the first couple of years, there was a lot more of the thinking and trying to get my head around areas of um, knowledge that I wasn't really familiar with and getting used to the lingo yeah. And then collecting my own data in the past year over COVID, which has been fun, mm. not exactly as planned, um, but still collected lots of data. And really at this point where I'm trying to, to make sense of it um, and to, to decide how I frame it, because a lot of it is in this sociological world, but that's obviously not the world I practice in. You know, I think there's something else. There's almost a different story I need to to tell for the practitioners but I do want to tell that slightly more yeah theoretical and lofty mm. story so is it, you know, it's interesting you talk about the sociological you know our, our masters wasn't our pain masters was was science and society as, as Mick reminded me in in our chat we had we had recently and and so you know, and some people argue that that pain is a is a social problem. I've I've argued that myself, talking to people. Um, and so what? So you're trying to bring some of those ideas 
to the practitioners or are you trying to bring the practitioners more that way in their thinking? I don't know. I think I'm basically in that spiral of who knows anything anymore and what is truth. Um, but I think, I think that I would really like practitioners to, to be clear about what they're talking about because we're, we're throwing these terms about self-management, not really questioning where they've come from or what influences it or what it is and how it impacts people. And then we're researching it. So we now have papers about self-management without really unpacking what that means. And then on the other side, I've found tons and tons of literature about you know, self-management, self-care. Um, from from so, from sociological critics, and they're quite critical of, of the concept in some some kind of frames. For example, with diabetes management. Um, so yeah, so I think maybe there's something about bringing the two the two together because the pain stuff um, is very interesting to my social science kind of colleagues. They're like, what? Because I thought pain, you know, it's pain. Um, and the body, you know, it it doesn't really present itself so much in social science, whereas I'm a physio and I I practice and I'm a practitioner, so I'm quite interested in the lived body, and so I suppose there's this, um, it's an interdisciplinary PhD I'm doing where I'm looking at a whole bunch of lenses, so I'm still retaining the knowledge that I have around the body and, you know, neuroscience and wherever else we're going with that but bringing that in around philosophy mainly for me was the reason philosophy has been important is because I hadn't really questioned that there was different ways of seeing the world I kind of thought it's just mm-hmm. just what it is you know it's what it is I know what I know it's just science isn't it and mm-hmm. I think that philosophy of science and trying to understand better where that came from to be able to say my position that I'm presenting this information to you is is really from this stance. So you understand where I'm coming from, which will hopefully then make sense with some of my my methods and some of, so uh, some of what I'm looking at is doing a literature review, but focusing on discourse. So what, what kind of, what's the main given you know, dominant view that is being portrayed in, in the literature. So a bit of linguistics and some stuff I'm toying with and getting really stuck. And then I, I pull back, but I'm really enjoying the, I suppose that academic exercise of just talk to lots of different people and get lots of different perspectives. Yeah. I still, I don't know how that will, or if it will drill down into practice, I hope so. My funders hope so. Mm. I mean, that was going to be my question, actually, interestingly, of, of who who do you want to benefit from this, from your work? Ultimately, um, the patients, I think, for me, is, is the... I'd like, ideally, that the structure of how we manage pain is improved or optimised, because um, I don't think we're there yet, as, as you and I both know. It's all a bit chaotic. So I don't think that can ever be solved as it's a complex system, but I think if we can apply slightly different thinking, perhaps we can get some new ideas into the fold. And I wonder if that might be more beneficial for some of the 
patients mainly and, and my work is driven by the patients I see so mm. they're the ones who are never going to be anywhere near a pain clinic or they'll be struggling with different medication issues they have um, quite serious medical problems so comorbidities um, their their mental perspectives their mental health might be impacted in lots of different ways so I think what am I trying to say I think I'd like to be able to account for that complexity in what we are offering yeah for people with pain yeah okay so that that's your that's your picture of of success seeing that happening um and, and with that in mind do you now have a sense of what self-management is <laughs> he's spoken to a phd student <laughs> <Two words. laughs> i think um like with most things what what what's coming up in terms of the data the empirical data is it means different things to different people and in different contexts and and i think one of the ideas i'm kind of playing around with is i'm not sure we've fully acknowledged the, the level of politics that drives the concept of self-management so that's something that i might talk a little bit more about is mm. it might be more politically driven than, than we think okay okay so so your your kind of leanings might determine that that you feel that you that your care should be more administered by someone else and other leanings might say well no it's more down to me it's my responsibility that do you mean that kind of thing well i'll give you an example so some of the um some of the practitioners that i've spoken to will say self-management as a, a behavior yeah so if you think about when i discuss or oh, we would love it if people more people were self-managing yeah um, so that's one i suppose one storyline that we're hearing um, and then there'll be a slightly different one, which is this person is this person is successfully self-managing, so we can discharge them. Yeah. So that's not talking about it as an outcome. It's they've done yeah. something really good, but at the same time, then other people will say, like I've just mentioned, I'm referring this person to self-management. So then that's like an intervention. It's mm. a, a set of um, not very well clarified. Um, ideas or um when i say you know intervention it's a complex thing that has many things thrown into it but it's summarized the shorthand is self-management so we've been looking and thinking that maybe self-management as it's used within chronic pain and in very specifically within this data is um it's like an empty signifier yeah. unless unless you kind of add the the baggage to it yeah you're not yeah. talking about anything specific um, yeah so it needs a context then doesn't it it needs and and we need to be talking about the same the same thing yeah and and i want and there's, there's almost the argument that can we be talking about the same thing when um so part of my work is looking through the policy literature um, and looking at the emergence of self-management and, and when that started to, to be a, a thing in, in pain. Um, and that really is quite recent. So before that, it was, a, it was like a, you, you go along to someone who offers you absolutely tools to help you 
you know, understand your pain, live better, live with pain, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But it wasn't really ever referred to as self-management until the policy literature kind of crosses over almost about the same time that self-management is talked about in relation to other long-term conditions. So when I speak to people with lived experience, on the other hand, they have no idea unless they've had contact with a pain management community. They don't use those phrases at all, Mm -hmm. but they're doing some very successful living with pain Um, and when I put the term to them a a few kind of comments are like well that's just totally economic you know if you just want me to get on with it and just leave you be Um, so yeah so I think it's just something that maybe would benefit from a bit more discussion dialogue rather than where we are right now is that it's very um, it's very emotive a very influential term um but yeah that's where i'm at wow i mean it it, it highlights the complexity of pain mm. hearing you know your you know your overall story of you know your clinical work and and this and obviously they're not completely exclusive because the common denominator is is you um but um but i guess in that complexity that that's what makes it so fascinating yeah, and I think the story of self-management is almost identical to the one of pain, is your beliefs or your explanations about pain are going to dictate what, what you think can be done about it. So if you have biomedical beliefs, then that's the intervention that needs to work for you. And yeah. if you have something slightly different, if you come from a different cultural context, you know, so I think what's quite nice at the moment is really drilling down these different ideas about pain maybe the more dominant ones and then trying to link in with um maybe i'm forcing the the connection but what what what's happening there when we we then talk about self-management because what if someone does something that i don't sanction is it still self-management if they're going to do something like you mentioned that might be um if I use a typical example they need to go along and see a private um practitioner who does something that would not be sanctioned as good self-management but it's definitely part of their process of managing a very long-term condition yeah yeah no that's that's a really interesting point isn't it because we you know, when I think about self-management, I'm thinking about the things that that person does to try and improve their life. But they might not even think of it. In that. They might just think, no, it's just a way that I, I cope. I've got no view on improving my life. I just deal with what I have to deal with. So it illustrates all the assumptions we can make. And, and they could go and see a private practitioner of, of you know, varying types and, and receive a passive, what we would say is a passive treatment. So they lie there and something's done to them um but to them that's self-management because i went along i chose it i booked it i paid for it i lay there they did something to me but i did all the rest of it that's that's self-management isn't it yeah and 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 what's really quite telling for me is that form of self-management is only available to those with the socioeconomic you know capital yeah you You mean the cash you need the cash don't you (laughs) 
you have to pay for that. And I think unless we acknowledge that some of you know the way we're set up is going to influence the structures are going to influence what interventions are offered or not offered or yeah I just think how many people do we know in our say our, our, our circles so I know so many people with sports injuries and they've got someone on speed dial yeah. a different someone some people have physiotherapists and have osteopaths or a massage therapist or someone that they go to at the point when something tips over yeah yeah no no no, absolutely and um uh, you know as you know i i my clinical work largely is is private and so i see people who who are you know live very well let's say and they they do they they will have a whole selection of therapists and doctors and and clinicians um and they there's something about that, you know, they've got that direct access. There's something that makes them feel safe, whether it's actually taking them forwards in any meaningful way is another matter. But in a way, you know, we can't tell them that that's up to them to decide and, and conclude. Um, so that's a whole other area to, to consider. Yeah. And it's not, I think for me, it's, it's because it's not acknowledged. It's like they're ghosts but so many people live their lives like that but it's an unexamined perspective we all kind of know it's done i mean i mean from my perspective i would just instinctively be a little bit like no don't do it <laughs> but equally you go oh okay then it's your choice that's great you're making active choices go for yeah. it yeah, and I think that you know, coming through that that empathetic, you know, non-judgmental lens, you you say, well, look, anyone else in that position with that status, with that access, you know, that's that person's resources, and we can criticize and say, well, it's all right for them; they've got money, but uh, but that that's what they can do. And I think that anyone else in that situation would do the same. It's like when we we could criticize someone for using cigarettes or drugs or alcohol, but, but that's their resource. That's what they're using to cope with what life has dealt with them. Um, and they haven't chosen to have a mind and a body that they were born with. They, they didn't choose the circumstances they were born into. That's not their fault. Um, so it's, it, that, that's got to be the start point, really. Yeah, I was, yeah. I find like I go into these really deep rabbit holes, and my brain wants to explode because I'm because I think sometimes you know how if you think if you have more money, you get a bigger house and presumably a better house, and better things and better cars and things like that. Maybe not happiness, but that's a slightly separate issue. Yeah, def- definitely not happiness, but other <laughs> things, yeah. You get these things. So I think if you've got money, do you get better healthcare beyond, you know, at what point does money become detrimental? Because do you suddenly get the what you want rather than what might be the most helpful thing because you can pay for it? Yeah. I wonder what the, I don't know, what's the queen's physio up to? I don't know, I have these thoughts. Yeah, well, no, but I think they're they're interesting. I mean, I've certainly had, um, I can remember someone a long time ago now saying to me, basically that, you know, I can afford to go wherever. Um, you know, if, if, you, if you can't make me better, I'll go somewhere else. So, you know, we had to have an interesting conversation around that because, you know, that's, that's not the kind of transaction that I would get involved with. 
Um, but and 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 you feel for you know there's there's compassion for that kind of approach because you know the money the money is talking um, and having all those choices you know as we know seeing more and more people makes it very confusing you know where do you where do you stop yeah yeah oh yeah I just I find it just endlessly fascinating but I'm not sure how helpful that is in a practical sense as in, you know, what, what would be a good question to ask around pain management and moving the, the kind of, what is it, speciality or area forward? Yeah. Any thoughts you can, yeah, you can maybe, maybe we'll put that out to everybody else and see what they come back with. Yeah, maybe the, maybe there's just a point where there's a certain number of choices and then when you go over that, it it's diminishing returns, something, something like that. Um, but yeah, maybe some people can have a, have a think about that, but we could, there's, there's so many, there's so many, you know, avenues and branches we could, we could go down, but it's been fascinating to hear what you're up to um, both, both in the hospital and, and with your studies. So where, where can people find out more about all of those things? Ah, so um, I think from an academic point of view, um, I have a Google Scholar page, which is under my name. I think okay. it's me, and that's like my academic papers and things like that. Um, I very rarely occasionally write for the Physiotherapy Pain Association um, blog or the, or the Pain and Rehab Journal. Um, I'm, I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Nabuala W, um, and I don't say much, but every now and then I do get right. involved, in, get involved in, in interesting conversations. But I am a little bit wary, um, and the usual. But if someone has something I'm really interested in conversations, um, yeah, you could contact me via Twitter, and then I could probably we could set up an email catch catch up back in the day, normal coffee times. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Well, I'll, I'll put all those links on the page. Um, so I'll, I'll grab them for you to make sure I've got them right. And then people can, can, can have a look. But um, that's been fantastic. Thanks. Thanks for coming along and, um, and having a chat. Great to catch up after the, all this time. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Take care. Bye bye.